Hello, welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Sean Spear. I'm a Monk Senior Fellow here at the McDonald Laurie Institute, and I'm, I'm pleased today to have with me uh, my colleague um, from the University of Saskatchewan and Monk Senior Fellow uh, Ken Coates to talk about what is a pretty exciting time uh, here in the nation's capital. Just in the past couple of weeks, uh, parliamentarians are back from their summer. Uh, and uh, there's a wide range of issues on, on the agenda. And what makes this session particularly interesting, uh, of course, is it will be the last time that parliamentarians gather uh, over the next several months before the next election. And so I, I'm grateful to have Ken with me today to talk about some of the things on the legislative calendar in the short term and some of the things on the horizon in the longer term that will invariably be part of the next election campaign. Uh, so thanks, thanks for joining, uh, Ken. It's great to be here with you, and it certainly is an interesting and important time in the nation's history. As, as, as you know, Ken, I, I spent um, years in the prime minister's office um, before I, I joined the McDonald Laurie Institute, and, and I, I cherished my time there. Um, but when I think of the series of issues that this prime minister and this government has on the agenda, I'm kind of glad that I'm on the outside <laughs> looking in as opposed to wrestling with the, the number of files that they have from the ongoing NAFTA negotiations to the Trans Mountain file to the invariable debate we'll be having on, on carbon taxation and, and uh, the role of government in, in addressing our climate objectives, to say nothing of uh, the work that you've been doing on, on our reconciliation with Indigenous Canada, immigration, and, and, and so on. Uh, so as I say, I'm in a way glad to be an outside spectator as opposed to, to uh, of trying to keep all these balls in the air. Well, you'll remember well, I, I imagine, the situation in 2008 when the financial crisis hit. And when that happened, one of the, one of the things that occurred in Ottawa was almost everything else was off, off on the back burner. Mm -hmm. We're now focused on this one thing. So you now have at least two or three simultaneous issues of comparable scale. Yes. Um, you know, maybe not the pain scale as the 2008 financial crisis, but in the same realm. Yes. NAFTA is absolutely fundamental. And uh, there's, there's pretty good signs we're heading towards something of a confrontation on that. Maybe not. The Trans Mountain Pipeline issues, really, really important. And, and on a far greater scale than people think. They think it's about a pipeline. Actually, it's about the future of the resource economy. And therefore, it's about the future of the Canadian economy. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's about the future of virtually all of northern Canada and most of small town Canada. Yes. This is not a small thing. It's not a pipeline to Vancouver. This is about what kind of economy Canada is going to have as a whole. So you add these things one on top of the other um, and then throw an election that's going to be held a year from now um, and realizing that the government really only has probably two months, maybe three months to get a real agenda filled out yes. because that's what they're going to talk about for the next nine months after that. Yes. Same with the opposition parties. It's it's going to be a barn burner. You mentioned the you mentioned uh, the the financial global financial crisis in 0809 and the extent to which there's an analogy. What what it made me think uh, is that during that time, Jim Flaherty, our finance minister, used to frequently cite former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Uh, Macmillan was famously asked what worries them the most, and he said, "Events, dear boy, events." What's striking about many of the files that you're talking about is that they are not ones that were part of the the public debate in the 2015 election campaign. They weren't part of the government's program. Uh, it really does reinforce the extent to which governing is about how well governments respond to issues and topics and events um, that they didn't plan for, but thrust themselves onto the agenda. Yeah, and absolutely right. And I, and I think the other part of this is that the, the federal government, the liberal government, 
more than most, actually in the, in the lead up to the 19, 2015 election and subsequently, actually set a lot of the agenda for 2019. They made promises on climate change that they're not going to come close to meeting. They made promises on pipelines that they're not going to come close to meeting. They made promises on reconciliation. And so what's happened is the events have come in the context of absolutely crystal clear government promises. We will do these things. First Nations relations will be the hallmark of our, our government. And so that's the context. And then a whole series of events. Just the other day, uh, the Prime Minister was visiting in Saskatoon. And he sat down with the Federation of Saskatchewan Indigenous Nations um, and had a, quite frankly, unsuccessful meeting. Somebody videotaped the meeting and had a four-minute clip showing the Prime Minister haranguing, basically, the Indigenous leadership in Saskatchewan for wasting his time and for making him sit and listen. Well, that actually really put back the Indigenous agenda probably more than the government thinks. Yeah. Everybody knows the government's sincere about this. He really, as a prime minister, really wants to do something. Yeah, don't do it that way. You know, so the event has actually overtaken and actually hurt his own agenda, agenda. which is really fascinating. We're, and we're seeing that happen not on one front or two fronts, uh, the refugee front. Why the prime minister tweeted out saying, our doors are open, we welcome all people from all places. Now we've got thousands of refugees coming in and claiming refugee status. So he kind of created the issues in a positive light. And then the events you're talking about absolutely came in and turned things upside down. And so I think there's a warning there for all politicians about basically managing expectations and don't, don't put bold, wonderful, big statements out that you're going to be challenged on and tested on in the years to come. Well, soon after the election, uh, listeners may be familiar with a, a project that we undertook here at the McDonald Laurie Institute, which Ken was a part, called Mandate for Change. And the purpose of the exercise was to take some of these articulations of objectives or principles or direction then government had articulated in 2015 election and to try to help the government think through the best means of delivering on those objectives. It was really done in the spirit of support and goodwill. And it, precisely for this reason um, that Ken describes, which is to say, everyone comes to government with good intentions, of course, but on a range of files, uh, those good intentions can uh, encounter a series of impediments that maybe weren't conceived of in the first place, whether it's the difficulty of reaching consensus with Indigenous communities uh, on particular files, or whether it's Donald Trump, uh, who uh, certainly was not part of the 2015 election campaign. And I think if you would have told uh, Justin Trudeau the day that he and his government were sworn in, in November 2015, when they famously walked to Rideau Hall together, um, that his first four years as prime minister would be marked by a reality TV star turned politician, uh, I suspect he would have thought you were nuts. But that's certainly, I think, the, the one issue that will come in a lot of ways to, to mark this government and how people will ultimately judge it. That's a really, really good point, because first off, nobody could manage Donald Trump. Other countries aren't doing any better. Japan tried one method, Britain's tried one method, and you sort of, Poland used to be on board, and now they're not on board because he sent a sort of nasty tweet out watching North Korea. You know, Donald Trump is very erratic, to say the least, and unpredictable. And what's really interesting there is that the, the government, whether it's fair or not, is going to be judged on the individual files that happen within, within this umbrella of, of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So if NAFTA collapses, it's a, quite a real possibility that within the next month, we'll have a tariff on automobiles. Yes. Should that happen, 
We're looking at very substantial layoffs and economic distress in southern Ontario and Quebec. Um, it would be a devastating sort of blow. The context will be Donald Trump sort of changing the agenda. I think Canadians are paying way too little attention to all the various forces that are pushing and prodding Donald Trump to go forward and to take on certain tasks and, and areas. But that's one of those unwinnable files. Yes. You know, if any other politician comes forward and says, we would have done a better job or we would have done X and Y, yeah, not necessarily. I mean, this is a real hard one. Yeah, I'd like to say, say two things in response to that. I very much agree. The first is you talked about some of the economic risks of this file unraveling. There's been some research done by colleagues at other think tanks at some of the banks on the, the potential economic costs of the abrogation of the NAFTA, and the numbers are pretty stark. And in a way, I think they're actually conservative, principally because they failed to, I think they failed to capture the imposition of, of uncertainty that it would impose on the Canadian economy. We already have basically flatline business investment in this country, and um, the abrogation or the repeal of the NAFTA would uh, it would certainly lead to tariffs, as you say, but there'd be a period of time where no one knew what the rules of the game were. Do we revert back to the bilateral agreement? Do we live in a world of WTO tariff rates? Really, I think that the imposition of more uncertainty when we're dealing with uncertainty on, on regulatory uncertainty on the resource file, the uncertainty of uh, the government's proposed carbon tax and so on, I think is a pretty nasty brew of, of economic headwinds that I think people have, have kind of failed to fully appreciate. The, the second quick point uh, yeah. is you talked about the challenges that any government, that any politician would face in dealing with this administration. I think that's right. Uh, and on that front, I think if this government ultimately gets a deal that involves major concessions on supply management, something that the McDonald Law Institute, including several of our contributors, uh, such as uh, Brett here uh, and others have, have made the case for, it really behooves the Conservative Party to resist playing politics. Uh, Mr. Scheer has been outspoken supporter of the supply management status quo. And if this government has to make major concessions on supply management, uh, I, I think it will be incumbent on Mr. Scheer um, to put politics aside on this because of the economic importance of the NAFTA. Just as, incidentally, uh, Mr. Trudeau and his government will need to put politics aside and resist the temptation to use Mr. Trump as a foil and to either prolong or even step outside of the NAFTA negotiations for political reasoning. In both those instances, Canadians will punish punish our, yeah. our, our politicians. I think you're right on both counts, and particularly on, on the second one. One of the things that sort of surprised me is for a group of really talented cabinet ministers and the prime minister and whatever, they're, they're kind of a bit deaf on the impact of some of their things that their activities are having. Yeah. One, of the, one of the ones that happened, you know, we know about the prime minister Trudeau and the sort of Canada's open, we accept refugees, et cetera, et cetera. We're paying millions of dollars for that tweet. Millions of dollars, not, not one million or two million, but probably $100 million by the time we get through the whole process because the doors are opened up and people start coming in. Well, that's irresponsible. Mm. And and somebody should be in charge and saying, don't do that. Um, our, our Minister of Global Affairs um, went to a, quite a radical event in Toronto just last week where she was speaking with a whole bunch of people who were talking about living in the age of tyrants. Now, she didn't specifically mention Trump by name, but she was on a platform and at a, an event that was actually putting his picture up with some of the worst dictators in the world. And 
put aside whether that's fair or not. I mean, if I was, you know, outside of government, if you want to stand up and do that as a private citizen or as an academic or a journalist, go ahead. That's one of the great joys in Canada. You can speak those things freely. But she's not a free agent when you're the, the foreign minister. And the backlash in Washington that we're hearing about is really huge. Yes. I mean, people are saying, this person stood up in a place that was labeling me as a tyrant, and quite an exaggeration, to be honest. Why are they doing that? These are times of incredible sensitivity on all fronts, on immigration, on indigenous affairs. So we have these sort of burbles coming along from time to time that suggest a certain amount of frustration in the government. And the government's going to have to calm that down. These are really big files. Almost all of them are sort of of nonpartisan value. You know, we don't want our, our parties really going toe-to-toe over the question of pipelines. If they, if they agree on pipelines, they should go ahead and, and work together on that. Same with immigration, these other sorts of things. And I think we're in a situation where, as a country, we have to be really sensitive about how, these, how everything we do is playing south of the border. Uh, because it's always a mistake to sort of say, it's Donald Trump. Of course, it's a huge factor. But there's a big 40% or 38% of the American population and a larger percentage of that in the, in the House and the, and the Senate who share some of those values. Yes. I don't think Canadians have anywhere near a good sense of sort of how much of a risk we're in right now economically. All the things we've talked about already, the NAFTA is really huge. The pipelines are way more significant than people think. Bringing in new regulations on resource development will scare away billions of dollars potentially in investment. These are sort of the big things. Um, but we've got is a, is a conversation in Canada that is a 1970s conversation. How do we redistribute wealth further? And we, we went down that road before in the 70s and it really backfired on the country. We got into massive debt. We're just risk transfers back and forth. You dampen down entrepreneurship. You dampen down sort of investment in a whole bunch of ways. And when the government talks, as it does all the time, about sort of middle class prosperity, it kind of ignores the fact that our middle class in Canada is actually doing really well much, much better than people think, much better than the rhetoric has it, but also ignores the fact that we're living in a world of rapidly changing realities. The future of work is uncertain. The introduction of new technologies, of robotics, of artificial intelligence, of digital processing, to add to that the outsourcing and globalization, we should as a country be having an absolutely razor focus on how we mobilize the colleges, the polytechs, the universities, the high schools, how we government policy to create something that is sustainable in the 20, 30, 40 year sort of time frame. And right now we're trying to think how do we get $500 a year more in the hands of the 15 to 20% of the people that will decide the next election. We can't afford that. And other countries are doing much better than we are in that regard. I think what you hit on the head is a concern around short-termism and a lack of ambition in, in the world of public policy. And that's not a particular critique of one government or one political party. I think it's a problem that afflicts uh, the, the policy debate in Canada. And, and of course, that's something that here at the McDonald Institute we're trying to, to push at. One of the problems with um, with the, the threats to business investment, of course, is that um, flatlined or, or declining business investment doesn't manifest itself today. It'll manifest, manifest itself down the road. And that's why it's incumbent on policymakers today to be thinking about the, creating the conditions to encourage investment long term. Similarly, when it comes to work and the opportunities that will be available to both present and, and future people in Canada, we can't think about it in a static way because of the, the dynamic change that you're referring to. And on that particular front, one thing um, that I think gets neglected in the conversation about resource development and the role of public policy 
is that you mentioned that on balance, our middle class has experienced relatively strong wage growth, relatively high employment rates, particularly compared to the United States. A big part of that, of course, has been our resource sector. University of um, British Columbia economist Kevin Milligan has done important work showing that the principal reason Canada has, according to the New York Times, the richest middle class in the world, is because uh, the resource sector. It essentially hoovered up a lot of people who, absent that, uh, may, may have been exhibiting many of the same effects of economic dislocation that we see in parts of the United States. And so the, the threats um, that we see for our resource sector, the, the policy-induced threats, don't just affect the top line of, uh, the bottom line rather, of um, resource firms or the revenue line for governments. Uh, we really are talking about the future of Canada's middle class. And I, I think that's a, a big part of the conversation here that's been missing. But more importantly, and this is the work that you're doing, it's not just the middle class. It's our indigenous communities uh, who, through resource development, have a chance to enter the mainstream of Canadian economic life. Do you want to just talk a bit about, about what you've been hearing and seeing on the ground? Well, that's the, that's the enormous irony, because if you ask the vast majority of Canadians what's happening with pipelines, the answer is environmentalists and First Nations people have lined up against the pipelines and they're stopping its development. Um, that's not true. Environmentalist involvement is true. The involvement of some First Nations, particularly those on the coast, who are actually opposed to coastal shipping more than they are to pipeline development, that, that part's absolutely true, and they have every right to do so and to protest in their own interests. The Indian Resource Council is one organization represents 130 oil and gas producing First Nations in Canada. How many Canadians know that there's 130 people who are producing oil and gas on their own lands? Wow. They're not, and plus the other ones, there's hundreds of indigenous entrepreneurs and business leaders and community-owned businesses that are involved in the resource sector. We've got huge investments coming in where they're buying parts of the Suncor supply chain and getting involved in that way. Aboriginal folks have, for the very first time in modern Canadian history, a chance to be part of the economic mainstream on their own terms. Yeah. And that second part is really critical. They decide when a development takes place, if a development takes place in many ways. They can slow it down. They can speed it up. Um, and we've seen an aggressive engagement that's positive and constructive and whatever. Right now, we have Indigenous groups that are seriously contemplating buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Who would have thought that five years ago? Well, the answer was anybody who was really working inside Aboriginal communities. Yeah. They've been building toward this for a long time. Aboriginal Economic Development Corporations, there's probably about 400 or 500 of them. Collectively, they have billions of dollars, not millions of dollars, billions of dollars in investable assets. And then that capital is financed through their, in part, through their impact and benefit agreement with resource companies. The impact and benefit agreements are critical. There's one, what they call a collaboration, collaboration agreement in northern Saskatchewan. It's worth $2 billion over 10 years for five isolated communities. Hard negotiations good results, the company's comfortable with the results. These are really great, positive, constructive sort of things. And isn't it ironic that when you have a prime minister who says, my number one relationship is this, First Nations and Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit people, and then they're called, like, take, taking on a policy that will go right at the heart and soul of that. So just to use a small example, there are First Nations contemplating suing the government of Canada for cancelling Northern Gateway. They didn't consult with them before they closed it down. You have to consult before you open it up. 
But you have to consult before you shut it off. Yeah. They're considering suing the government for banning tra tanker traffic on the northwest coast. No consultation. Um, in, the, in the far north, they're considering suing the government for cancelling oil and gas development in the Arctic waters. No consultation. The governments of Nunavut and Northwest Territories were alerted half an hour or an hour before they actually announced it formally. And this is not consultation, it's not engagement, it's not partnership, it's none of those things, which is really ironic. So the good news is, Aboriginal folks who are doing surprisingly well, there is only one front line of reconciliation in Canada. There's only one place where real, honest-to-goodness, Indigenous-driven progress is happening, and it's the natural resource sector. Canadians think that's where the opposition is. Yeah. 400 agreements with mining companies currently active all across the country. Hundreds and hundreds of agreements with the forest industry working really well across the country. Perfectly, not at all. Are they getting all the benefits Indigenous people deserve? Not at all. The training, the preparation isn't there. So it's really sad to watch this sort of cycle coming back around and sort of seeing where Indigenous folks having been sort of done everything that they were supposed to do, lining up, fighting with the government and with corporations over legal rights, winning court case after court case after court case, gaining real power and saying, now we're going to do it. And then inadvertently, the government coming and saying, well, maybe we won't. And looming in the offing, if you want to find the debate of the next couple of months, it's going to be a real barn burner. It's actually over the extension of, of environmental assessment. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at a brand new model of sort of adding cumulative benefits and adding cumulative impacts into this sort of you know, study. Um, imagine just for a second what would happen if you did this. So cumulative effects basically says when you do a development, you can't just look at the immediate location. What are the long-term effects? So if you take oil and gas out of the ground, and what are the long-term environmental effects and blah, blah, blah. That all makes sense. I'm being a bit facetious here, but imagine if you did the same thing to the auto sector. So somebody's going to come and build a new plant that's going to hire 5,000 people, but the government's going to hold back on the permits until they do a full cumulative effects measurement. What is that about? You're building vehicles that are going to pollute, and you're going to pollute by building the vehicles in the first place. You're going to have to take that into account. When you actually get them on the road, you're going to start burning ga gasoline, and, and you're going to add to the carbon in the, in the air, and the assessment is going to say, well, we can't afford our auto plant. And to which somebody will say, but if they don't buy it from us, they're going to buy it from somewhere else. They're going to buy it from an American car, a Japanese company. Guess what, folks? If they don't use oil sands, don't use Canadian oil and gas, do you think China is going to go without? The world has lots of oil and gas right now. They're just going to buy it from somewhere else. And all Canada is going to feel sanctimonious and self-righteous, which we're good at, but we're going to lose a huge economic opportunity as a consequence. Sean, you were bang on when you were talking about sort of the, the cumulative economic effects of these things and trying to get a real sense of what's going on. And, you know, I'm from the Yukon, you're from Thunder Bay, so I'm in the north and you're down south. Um, and you, you look at these kind of, these communities are going to be devastated by these processes. Mm. And these new environmental regulations and, the, you know, the lack of investment in the country. But quite frankly, do the folks of Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, give five seconds of thought a year to the people who live in the Prince George's and Thunder Bays of the world? Not at a chance. Well, there's so much there. Let me, let me respond quickly uh, with, with two points, uh, although there could be several. Uh, listeners, we're sorry if this podcast runs on. It's just I don't get to spend a lot of time with Ken because, of course, he's in Saskatchewan. But we're so lucky to have him involved at the Institute. The two things I would say in response is the first, the one thing I think that you've touched on in your conversation about the intersection between the government's environmental goals and its, its goals around uh, reconciliation with, uh, with Indigenous Canadians speaks to the importance of thinking uh, about these issues holistically. 
I, as I said earlier, I spent time in the government and oftentimes um, because of the structure of government, because of the processes used for decision making, uh, these things tend to be seen in discrete terms. And it takes real discipline on the parts of policymakers to think about the interaction and the potential for inadvertent consequences when thinking about an energy policy, a reconciliation agenda, an environmental agenda, a trade agenda, a skills agenda, a work. I mean, all of these things are inextricably linked and it behooves policymakers to do a better job of, of thinking about them holistically. Yeah. The, the second point you made about rural Canada, I think, is an important one. There are about 500 communities in this country that are dependent on the resource sector. And these are places that oftentimes have, um, that don't have diversified economies. They don't have the luxury of uh, Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver or other places where uh, the economy is more dynamic, where there's more diverse sectoral uh, presence. And so it, it quite seriously, a resource policy that puts the investment at risk that puts those projects at risk can be existential for these communities. Um, and earlier this summer, there was a column in the Financial Post by a friend of ours at the McDowell Institute that said, I think a bit tongue in cheek, if these communities are gonna die, they should die. And I know we both took offense to, offense to it, principally because, you know, I'm not nostalgic. If the economy can't sustain itself for market reasons, then I think people need to think about relocating where there's more opportunity. And, and I think left to their own devices, people, people will do that. But what's so maddening is that in a lot of these instances, it's not market outcomes that are that driving this kind of change. It's actually what Ed Glazer at Harvard calls policy-induced dislocation. We talk a lot about trade-induced dislocation or technology-induced dislocation, but the truth is I think what we're seeing in large parts of Canada, particularly rural Canada these days, is policy-induced dislocation. And the people that I know in Thunder Bay or the people you know in Yukon or in parts of Saskatchewan, they're not looking for handouts, but they are expecting policymakers to adopt the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And the truth is, cumulatively in Canada, um, policymakers are doing a lot of harm. And for these communities, it quite seriously um, is the difference between their kids staying or moving for good. I couldn't agree more. It actually makes me really both sad and nervous um, because the reality is, is that our government, not just this government, the previous government as well, very much driven by urban imperatives. Yeah. Uh, we're an aggressively urban country. We're actually a southern country. We want, what, 90% of Canadians live within 150 kilometers of the U.S. border, and more than half the population is south of the 49th parallel. We're not a northern country. We're a fraud as a true northern nation. Compare us to Norway or Finland or Sweden or, or Iceland or someplace like that. And that really bothers me because people are making policy without even so much as a thought about what goes on in these areas. But let me put two other little twists on it, if I could, Sean. One of them is, is that a real strength of Canada for the last 50 years has been our willingness and ability to pay above pay high wages to people of relatively low skill. Yeah. That was the manufacturing sector, auto sector in, in, in particular, um, some construction sites. Fort McMurray was a whole bunch of people who were grade high school dropouts, went up there and worked hard and were honest, hardworking people, and they made $100,000 driving a bus, right? That's fabulous. And, and we did well that way. Those are the people we're throwing under the bus now. And we're not talking, when we talk about middle class and we talk about going to university and all that kind of stuff, 
most people can't go to university. Most people can't complete a really high skill technical program in a polytech or a community college. Can I just pause you for one second? Because I think this is a terribly important point for listeners. Canada has amongst the highest rates of post-secondary education in the world. And it still, uh, it, that doesn't mean that every person is going to go to post-secondary. In fact, a majority or, or pretty close to majority even with all of the efforts to expand access and so on, will not go to post-secondary. And that's fine. Uh, that's hardly a judgment. Um, but the risk, of course, is if policymakers are neglecting these people in the way that they think about policy, it means that a significant share of the population is just not part of the public agenda. I don't mean to interrupt, but I, no. I just, it's extraordinary that I think most people, there's a, there's a real confirmation bias in the world of policy and politics. Most people around the table, by definition, have post-secondary backgrounds. And I think it's easy to forget the truth is for uh, close to a majority, depending on which age group you're looking at, people are not going to have post-secondary education and they need a seat at the table. Well, absolutely. You know, for, for a long time, we didn't mind paying those people high wages. Those jobs are disappearing. In the auto sector, some of the companies have one set of wages for the senior people and a lower set of wages for the, for the newcomers into the area. We're not thinking about those folks at all. And post-secondary isn't the answer um, because our structures are very traditional and very conservative and, and whatever. And if we don't start thinking about them, we're looking at massive dislocations of people who are good, honest, hardworking Canadians who will be laid off when they're 50 years old, will have nothing to look forward to for the next part of their working lives, and will be very bitter. And we've seen this happen in England. We've seen it happen in different parts of Europe. We've seen it happen across the United States. And surely we can learn the lesson. Those are Canadian citizens who are, we should value very, very highly. That causes me a pause. The other one that's very much the opposite of this is this current government and the previous government as well talk endlessly about an innovation agenda. I think the language sounds great. The reality is very, very different. So what does that mean? Well, we have an, what I call an innovation equation. Innovation was really simple, and almost every country in the world follows it. What you do is you send a whole bunch of people to post-secondary education, plus a whole bunch of money into basic research, plus money for commercialization, equals jobs and prosperity. We're going to create biotech, we're infotech, we're going to create medical technologies, we're going to create nanotechnology. We're going to do all these wonderful things in the 21st century. So Canada's done the first. As you said, one of the highest rates of post-secondary participation, it's through the roof, it's way too high. There are a lot of people there who don't belong there. They're just there because their mother and, their, and the prime minister and the premiers all said you should go. <laughs> on basic research, we have a very high level of government funding. Government has done its part on basic research. Private sector, almost nowhere to be seen. Um, compared to Japan, South Korea, compared to China, compared to the United States, the private sector is not coming to the table on basic research. Commercialization doesn't work very well. We put a lot of money into commercializing the biologist's wonderful new idea. The return on investment is really low, pretty close to zero. So guess what? We aren't getting jobs in prosperity. Waterloo's doing fine. Waterloo's doing really well. Toronto is really on a roll. Vancouver's doing great. But you know what those areas share in common? They were doing great anyway. Yeah. You know, they were doing really fine. And they've got strong economies, Montreal as well. But that's kind of it. Calgary too a little bit, but based so much on the oil and gas sector that it's now in serious difficulty. Halifax, unfortunately, trying to rebuild around oceans, and I hope they'll succeed, but but they're way behind the eight ball on that one. Not a huge portion, what number? 90%, 95% of our investment money goes into urban, goes into cities. We now have a city-state economy where we have maybe five or six vibrant urban economies in the country responsible for more than 100% of job creation. All the rest of the country is a net, is a net negative. 
So the jobs are created in the area. Where's the strategy? Where's the thinking about that? So my own view is that we have to do what I call inverting innovation. So right now it's based on a simple model, all university, college, polytech based, almost all urban based, you know, pour the money into Toronto, all this kind of stuff. Of course you should do some of that. But what's happening in the smaller towns? They would benefit the most from a lot of these technologies. We could actually become world leaders in developing technological solutions for small towns, rural areas, isolated locations, indigenous populations. We could actually carve out a market niche for hundreds of millions of people around the world by being the best at rural innovation. So how are we doing? Terribly. I would say two things quick uh, to add to what you just said. The first is uh, you, you talked about this being a potential comparative advantage for Canada. Uh, I agree, especially since we're, not, we're hardly the only ones dealing with this challenge. If we can get this right, if we can help communities experiencing dislocation rebuild and revitalize and reinvigorate themselves, it's a model that we can uh, export to the world. The, the second thing I, I'd say is you talked about the innovation equation and, and the, the kind of group think on the, on the innovation file. I think a big part of it is the way we conceptualize innovation. It has, here in Ottawa, we have, we've come to conceptualize innovation as something that only happens in the high-tech sector. When the government wants to convey or project innovation, they go to Shopify here in, in Ottawa. And Shopify is a wonderful Canadian success story. It's hardly to diminish it. But the truth is, what it fails to recognize is the extent to which innovation is occurring across the economy. Some of Canada's most innovative companies are not in the high tech sector. They're using technology uh, as a means in their respective industries, agriculture, retail, financial services, and so on. And so I think one project that we're working on here at the Institute is to try to broaden the way that policymakers conceptualize the innovation question. And, and I think if you think about it more holistically, one of the consequences, it changes the mix of policies. We have an innovation a set of innovation policies that principally are designed with the high tech sector in mind. And I, I think um, that's something that needs to that needs to change. So Sean, just let me jump in if you don't mind, because one of the other part of this is innovation is one of the great job killers of the 21st century. So if people look at this and say, we're creating all these innovative jobs, fantastic. The Shopify's of the world are terrific, right? Um, and the government always loves to go down to Waterloo and have announcements about, because Waterloo, I was there for five years as the Dean of Arts at the University of Waterloo. It's a great place, dynamic and exciting and everything else. But there's consequences. So if you look at small towns, their retail sectors are being eviscerated. They're being eviscerated by online shopping. Yeah. Um, well, it's Amazon.ca or Canadian Tire or all these kinds of things. Um, you know, Kobo's with the destroyed bookstores. You're, you're looking at this and thinking, you're losing an awful lot of jobs as a consequence of these very same technologies. Should we stop it? Absolutely not. People will migrate toward technology and commercial solutions that are great, but let's start balancing this off and think, okay, what are we going to do instead? So just to use your example, um, Sudbury, Laurentian uh, University is a host of a, and, and the Sudbury region, the host of a wonderful innovation center on mining. Most Canadians have absolutely no idea it exists. When I go up there, there are some university-based scholars who are doing great work, and there's a whole bunch of people who came out of the mines and they're 50 years old. I've watched this one thing. If we could fix this one thing, we'll make a lot more money. We'll be more efficient. They come out of there, set up a company, and now they're doing well. Yeah. It's a mining center of international significance that Canadians probably couldn't 
wouldn't even think about. Saskatoon, city of Saskatoon, is a center of perhaps the most creative, innovative, and high-tech agricultural sector in the world. Yes. They are doing stunning things, from biotechnology on the one hand, and sort of new plant developments and plant resistance or for heat and cold and all these kinds of things, and doing things with, with uh, you know, the seeding processes and fertilizers and things like that. This is absolutely amazing, amazing stuff. But if you watch the current trajectory, both of these communities will see really serious problems in the next 10 to 15 years, because we're not celebrating it enough. We're not talking about it in a way that sort of makes it into our a, a definition of our future. And those are the more successful ones. The other places, we have no technology strategy for how you invert innovation and make it work in these places so that these places are better to work in, easier to work in. So I, one of the things that drives me crazy, and every once in a while the government makes an announcement, conservatives did it as well. We're putting in $100 million into rural broad, broadband the 14 people who pay attention in Toronto go, oh, that's good, it's all solved. Well, $100 million solves nothing in a country this size. That's an absolute drop in the bucket. And if you actually look at the problem is that those, the gap is sometimes getting larger. It's picking up faster and faster speeds in Toronto and Vancouver and Ottawa and slower, relatively slower speeds in other sorts of places. We're just now talking about getting quasi-decent you know, internet into Nunavut, mm -hmm. but only to a Callaway, right? Greenland, Nuka, right across the right across the, the strait, they've had they've had a fiber optic cable that comes out of Nova out of Newfoundland for years. We can't do the same thing for a, a territorial capital. If you go up there, the people pay huge amounts, eight hundred nine hundred dollars a month for a smartphone, because the cost of internet is so ridiculously high. This is scandalous, absolutely scandalous. And the McDonald's Institute has, has, has done some work on creating the conditions, market conditions, for a private sector-driven investment in internet technology and the infrastructure. And I agree, this is a great example of where a do-no-harm approach to rural economic development is, is possible. At the precise moment when technology is enabling us to do work in a diffused way without necessarily being concentrated in the places that have the highest living costs and so on, we need to ensure that we have the backbone, the technology to uh, enable firms to make those choices about whether they want to be in Toronto paying exorbitant rent and where they can't find workers because people can't afford to live there, or they want to set up an office somewhere else in the country. Uh, and use technological connectivity to enable them to carry out their business. This would be so exciting when you actually think about it. If you're going to find where's the wonderful place to live, well, Toronto, you've got to be joking. Toronto has the 401. Nobody in their right mind wants to live in a place that your life is governed by the 401. It's just, it's the nightmare. Um, if you lived also a, a, a subway line, you're sort of somewhat okay. Um, but compare that to Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. Um, Okanagan Valley Bridge. Okanagan Valley, absolutely, or or Niagara on the Lake down in southern southern Ontario, um, or the Yukon, Whitehorse, which is and it's interesting. Two examples here that stand out. One is a place like Aspen, Colorado, where they've taken sort of the the beautiful and richness and wonderful lifestyle of that place and turned it into a really successful economy. Banff has the same potential. So does Jasper, but they aren't. They aren't even trying to compete in the same way. We have the BAMP Center, but it has nowhere near the impact of what you could have. But do watch Kananaskis and, and, and do watch that area because I think they have some potential to move in that direction. But in the Yukon, they, the government up there uh, and, the, and the local business people talk about what they call lone eagles. 
And you know, the idea of attracting business is a hugely competitive process. You're competing with everybody in the world. It's very different to attract a person. So you know, you're from Thunder Bay. If the conditions were right and you could actually had really high speed internet, you could be video conferencing with people you wanted to talk to. It's a relatively short flight from Thunder Bay to Toronto and on to the rest of the world. You know, would you contemplate going there and having maybe, right? Whitehorse, which is one of the most beautiful places on the planet, has been attracting a whole bunch of lone eagles. And these are highly skilled professionals, accountants and, and mining engineers and inventors and all this kind of stuff. They say, I'm gonna live in paradise. I can be in Vancouver in two and a half hours and from there can get anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, and the, the government of Yukon for not in the last little while, they're going after a conscious effort to recruit those people. Mm. You know, you can go and get a factory that has hires 50 people, relatively low paid people, or go and attract 100, 100 sort of you know, lone eagles. Mm. Which one has the greatest economic impact? Mm. And you start getting clusters developing, you start getting synergies in these small towns. I, I guess part of the thing, if I back up from all of this, um, and this is me, when you love your country as much as I do and as you do, you feel a bit more liberated to be critical of it. So I accept that as sort of my apology ahead of time. We are one of the laziest countries on the planet. We've been given the gift of an American market that was accessible to us on relatively easy and low terms. We didn't have to work hard to do that. Um, we just get a, you know, take years to negotiate a free trade agreement that we, as everybody could see was going to be in our best interest, but still were resistant to Americanization. And we had massive resource deposits that we developed and produced all the income and all the jobs you're talking about with relative ease. You know, and so we didn't have to think about these things so much because we could always count on a whole bunch more resources. We'll open some new mines. We'll develop the oil and the gas fields and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and But the flip side of that, and the part that really bothers me, is I think I can't think of a country that asks less of its citizens than Canada. Um, you try to think of other countries that have compulsory military engagement, people who expect you to stay in the country. You don't hear very many Japanese inventors leaving their country or South Korean inventors, even people from Singapore or Israel or places like that. Canada and Canadians, we oh, we're doing well. It's time for us to leave. Well, I'm a really successful comedian. I should go live in New York City or, 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 or live in Los Angeles. There aren't very many places in the world that have as low loyalty expectations from its citizens as Canada. And that's a blessing in one sense because we have a lot of people coming to us who've given up on their own country for whatever set of reasons. When we send people away, some of them come back. But I think we do not have a brain trust in Canada. That's why I love working with the Mongolian students so much. Uh, we don't have a big brain trust of people in Canada who are sitting there fighting for its country's future. I don't mean in a partisan sense at all, but I mean in the sense of really coming up with creative ideas and good argumentation and great analysis that says, Canadians, sit up and take notice. Your future is, is very much at, at risk. Well, I, I think that's a, a good way to, to wrap up today's conversation. I, I think what Ken is saying, which is something I, I strongly agree with, and in, in some ways it brings us back to the beginning of the conversation about the moment we find ourselves in, the last legislative session before the election. I do think Canadians are ready to be challenged with ambition, ready to be challenged with a bit of a vision. And well, the government and the opposition parties will need to confront a wide range of issues from the environment to energy, to relationship with the United States, to reconciliation with indigenous communities, to thinking about the future of work, to thinking about uh, how to enable innovation, to think about how to sustain and strengthen our rural uh, and remote communities. All of these things are important, but I think if the parties and the policymakers choose to listen to the McDonald Laurie Institute, they'll be armed uh, with many of the ideas that can help populate 
that kind of an agenda and vision. And uh, who I think it was Kim Campbell who said elections aren't a great time for ideas or policy. I, I, I think here at the McDonald Law Institute, we would respectfully disagree. And, and I, I know Ken has an ambitious agenda over the next several months, and, and, and many of us do here to make sure that the next election is about ideas and vision, even if in the end, our political parties don't quite meet that threshold. So uh, thank you for joining us, Ken. We love having you in Ottawa. And, and thank you uh, to listeners for joining us for another episode of, of Pod Bless Canada. We look forward to an exciting conversation over the next several months. <laughs>